From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Doug Blair, and this is a special episode of Heritage Explains. On our last Back to School episode, we focused on a very important aspect of modern American education, the appalling state of our civics. This week, we're highlighting the wave of anti-free speech activism on college campuses and what can be done to stop it. Words are power. On a personal note, we all know the words we use affect our relationships with our loved ones and friends. In the political arena, words have even bigger consequences. Wars start and end as a result of the words politicians use. Countries rise and fall based on word choice. To put it simply, words are a pretty big deal. The left recognizes the power words have and has been attempting to shift the way we use them in their direction. Universities institute speech codes and create limited free speech zones in an attempt to control what words can and cannot be used. Ultimately though, these efforts are misguided. As Supreme Court Justice Brandeis put it in a 1927 case, if there be time to expose through discussion the falsehoods and fallacies, to avert the evil by the process of education, The remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence. More than 200 schools in this country maintain what they call bias response teams. Their job is to investigate thought crimes that students may have committed. Okay, so just to be just to be clear, if I attempt to enter that hall right there and sit down just to listen to somebody speak, or if I attempt to ask a question or to engage in free speech, you will have me arrested. At this point, yes, sir. They come to campus, this is the last chance, the last chance we could possibly give young Americans to learn to work out their differences. And we don't do it. We have more and more deans and processes and bias response teams so that there's always an adult to call in to settle the problem. A USC professor placed on leave after black students complained his pronunciation of a Chinese word affected their mental health. I don't agree with that either. You know, I, I don't agree that you, when you become students at colleges, have to be coddled and protected from different points of view. This week, I'm speaking with Jonathan Butcher, a senior policy analyst at the Center for Education Policy and the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. He wrote a piece titled, Will Free Speech Survive on College Campuses? He'll answer that question and walk us through the state of the First Amendment at America's universities after this short break. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Bluey, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Can you give us a brief status update on free speech on college campuses? 
Well, the most recent thing to happen was the announcement from the president and the uh, Department of Education that now, uh, as following up from the president's executive order from last year, the department is going to look into withholding grant funding, federal grant money, from universities that have speech codes or are found to have something that the agency determines is uh, a violation of what uh, what the president explained through his executive order last year and uh, would otherwise create you know a free speech zone on campus or a bias response team a lot of these things that we've been seeing in the headlines over the past 5 to 10 years in terms of free speech on college campuses would you say that it's supported or would you say that it's unsupported well i think with the problems that we've seen over the past 5 to 7 years in particular when it comes to free speech on campus, namely universities creating speech codes, shoutdowns of invited speakers, even disinvitations of invited speakers in some cases, it is still very true uh, that campuses have speech codes such as free speech zones or bias response teams. Uh, it is still a place where we cannot be sure, certainly, uh, that a student is going to be able to express themselves um, on campus under the, you know, under the uh, the principles of the First Amendment. Uh, so I think it is without question um, still something that uh, those on both the right and the left should be watching very closely. How does the mainstream media or most of the mainstream media depict the state of free speech on campuses? Well, they will often cover uh, shoutdowns and they'll talk about speakers who were invited and how a, a group uh, of students or otherwise uh, disrupted the event or you know otherwise made it difficult for the event to to happen the two things that are on front and center i think on this issue in terms of policy right now are happening at one at princeton and the other at a college uh, down in georgia the issue at princeton is that the college president at the beginning of September wrote a letter to the university community saying that there was systemic racism effectively on campus and that he was going to be uh, doing everything in his power to, uh, to, to get rid of that and, and to battle that and to fight that. And now this is a continuation from a discussion that the university has really been having since the summer when a large group of faculty wrote a letter and sent it to the administration at Princeton saying that uh, they were going to make certain demands. Uh, many of them were in line with what we saw over the summer in terms of Black Lives Matter and demands that um, uh, people of color be promoted to certain um, uh, different, uh, have a different status on campus, uh, that there be certain uh, concessions given to uh, minorities on campus. So that letter was sent and then there was one professor on campus, one faculty member, who actually objected and had his story uh, told on the pages of the Wall Street Journal because the university president there at Princeton called for an investigation into this uh, individual. So fast forward now to September, the university president has once again written a statement sort of in line with all of this saying, well, there's systemic racism on campus, so we need to be uh, doing whatever we can to get rid of it. Well, in a very clever move, the U.S. Department of Education replied with a note uh, to the president and said, wait a minute, if there's racism on campus, that's illegal. You can't do that if you're accepting federal money. And so they're going to, uh, they asked for a number of documents and uh, are going to hold an investigation uh, to determine what really is going on. Um, you know, a lot of this kind of maybe uh, 
just at the level of discussion right now, but it, I think the, the U.S. Department of Ed certainly uh, called Princeton's bluff anyway, or the bluff of the president of the school. When it comes to uh, what's happening at a small college down in Georgia, Gwinnett College, uh, that case is actually going to be before the U.S. Supreme Court. They've agreed to hear it later this year, I believe. And um, the, uh, the, the issue is a free speech zone that the, uh, the college instituted. Now, these so-called free speech zones are actually uh, rather small physical areas on campus that um, you have to usually sign up to go and speak your mind on um, politics or some other matter in one of these speech zones. Well, a student sued saying that this violated their rights. Um, and so uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom and others have, have now represented the student and have gotten it before the U.S. Supreme Court. So those, those, I think, are two things that really the media who are interested in covering this topic really should be watching. On a further note on that, because that's very interesting, you, you mentioned the Princeton racism letter and the, the free speech zones. Are there actual consequences to these speech incidents? Are these colleges facing consequences for these things? Like, are these are these campaigns successful to, to get justice? Well, I, I think that what's happened over time, uh, really, is that often a university will rescind its speech code as a if there's a case against them and as it progresses through the court system. Great example of this was at the University of Michigan last year, earlier this year, last year, when a group called Speech First was representing a student there at uh, Michigan uh, who said uh, that the bias response team that Michigan employed was also a violation of their rights. And uh, now a bias response team is when you can make an anonymous report to a group of um, administrators or um, employees of the university, and you can complain about something that someone else has said or a, a flyer that was put up on campus or something like that. And then the uh, this bias response team will go and investigate. Um, they'll investigate what, um, what the accusation was with, often without even telling the person or group that they're investigating who you know, called for this. So, you know, it, there is very much a, um, a kind of a, a, a clandestine, almost, um, you know, Cold War era spy feel, right, to all of this. And along the way, Michigan ultimately settled uh, the case and said they would uh, change their speech code. And, and uh, when it appeared that the case was, in fact, gaining steam and that they may lose. So this has ha this sort of thing has happened before, right, where um, a group will represent a student or they'll challenge a speech code. And then the university will see how far it goes in the court system. And if it seems to gain traction, they'll, they'll rescind it. And then, you know, the whole thing will go away. So there's no telling if it may come back, which it might in some cases. So I, I think that working through the courts is an effective way to slow the spread of, uh, of these speech codes. What's important to watch, though, is that there are states that have enacted proposals that do have consequences for individuals who violate the free speech rights of someone else. And this is, this is key here. Uh, a number of states, including Arizona, Alabama, North Carolina, uh, Georgia is another, um, the Wisconsin University Board of Regents, they have enacted policies that say uh, anyone lawfully present on a public college campus is allowed to protest or demonstrate on that campus. And uh, if they violate the free speech rights of someone else, 
why then the university uh, must enact consequences up to, in some cases, including suspension or expulsion. This is an appropriate policy measure. This is what we need state lawmakers to be doing. One of the things that struck me was when you mentioned the bias response teams. And from my understanding, the idea of a bias response team is that the student will report something that they found offensive. So how far back does this idea that the students are censoring opinions that they don't want to hear when the students are the ones saying, I don't want to hear that, uh, I, I, don't, I don't have to listen to you? Well, I mean, goodness, you know, this issue dates back to, um, you know, the turn of the, the 20th century when uh, president of Sh- University of Chicago made a statement committing the university to free speech uh, once again. And then, of course, you had the protests and the riots in the 60s and the 70s kind of culminating with the publication of uh, what became known as the Woodward Report at Yale, which established some very solid protections I mean, around the idea of free speech on campus. And then, you know, I think there was a, a, a gradual, I think, um, uh, some quiet on the issue for a time. And then uh, about a decade ago, um, around the time of some unrest at the University of Missouri, for those that remember that, with the journalism professor and some students, and she was calling for muscle to get rid of a student who was videotaping or asking questions. And then, you know, it kind of continued to ramp up from there. Uh, with shoutdowns and disinvitations and things like that. I mean, this the pedigree, I think, of, of violations of free speech on campus goes back quite a ways. Um, I, I think that there are really two primary groups of individuals uh, who are at the center of this. One are administrators, and the administrators of universities are the ones who have not historically been enacting consequences on individuals that violate the free speech rights of others and have, in some cases, been condoning disinvitations. That's why the Woodward Report is so significant, because it was you know, from um, uh, the administration and others at Yale that was calling for the protection of free speech on campus. Um, and then you know, the other group is our students. And students today, I think, are feeling as though they are entitled to say that they don't have to listen to ideas with which they disagree. Um, And that's why the statement from the University of Chicago, known as the Chicago Statement, that uh, says that that very thing, that a university's job is not to protect students or anyone else from ideas with which they disagree. And so students who are calling on the suppression of others um, uh, need to be told by the adults, right, by the administrators, uh, by the faculty, uh, that, um, you know, we're not, universities aren't there to shield them, um, that it's important that they uh, hear ideas with which they disagree, ideas that challenge them. And then, as a famous quote from a Supreme Court uh, statement, that we need to counter speech with more speech. That's the way that we, uh, we should deal with this issue. One of the things that students will sometimes say is that hate speech or speech is violence. So there, there is a very real concern about, about safety on campuses. So how do we balance individual safety on campuses against threats of violence while still protecting First Amendment rights? And is there a way to protect against, quote unquote, hate speech without destroying free speech? Well, I think that's why the state proposals that I was referring to earlier are so critical here. You know, these proposals make it part of the university policy that the university will enact sanctions if necessary on students that violate the free speech rights of someone else. Um, There was an example at the University of Wisconsin uh, two years ago where a group that had shouted down a speaker before 
was protesting again outside of a invited lecturer. This happened to be Katie Pavlich from townhall.com was speaking and the group was protesting. Uh, and in fact, the press were there covering the event, uh, not the least of which because there were protesters there. And the press asked the leader of this group of demonstrating students, hey, are you going to are you going to shout down this speech like you've done before? I mean, are you going to stop this from happening? And the leader of the group said, no, because the university has adopted policies that says we could face suspension or expulsion. And so the group demonstrated, they protested outside of the event. The event continued as expected. It went on as planned. And then, you know, both sides of the event were covered. Both the protesters, you know, were able to talk to the media. And then, of course, the, the speaker was able to give her remarks. So this is what we want to see, right? We want to create a situation where you can have demonstrations, right, appropriately on campus, but not demonstrations that violate someone else's right to be heard. So I think it's, it's laying down this idea that those that violate someone else's expressive rights will face consequences. It only has to happen once or twice. We're not talking about creating a police state here. I think what we're talking about is giving an example, setting into policy something that would dissuade people from thinking that they can uh, silence someone else. One last question. If there are any students currently attending these colleges, either online or in person, who are listening to this podcast right now, What's one thing that you would like for them to keep in mind as they start to navigate these free speech issues on campus? Well, I think uh, maintaining contact with other students uh, that uh, are also feeling pressure to either be silenced or to not have their ideas heard and talk with them about how they can uh, rally together and talk to um, uh, faculty and administrators about how they feel that they are being silenced themselves and say, you know, listen, we want both sides to be to be heard, right? Uh, we don't want to feel like if we speak up in class, if we speak up in an online um, session, uh, that we're going to face consequences for something that we do. I mean, we want this to be a place where, you know, we can hear hear both sides, you know, and by the same token, right, You we need administrators and faculty to recognize that they're not helping anyone by uh, saying that only certain speech is going to be allowed in uh, public areas of campus. Um, you know, universities have the responsibility to maintain order within uh, classrooms, but that's different than saying, um, you know, that only certain students can protest outside of the building. I think what is hurting this cause right now for both sides uh, are examples like when a there was a professor at USC uh, recently who was a business professor, he was giving a business lecture, and he was speaking in uh, Chinese to let some of his international students and even uh, American students from the United States know um, how uh, certain dialects work and how there are pauses in certain dialects. And it happened to be a term that sounded like an offensive uh, term to uh, black individuals. Well, two students, it wasn't even the majority of the class, but two or three students protested to the dean who turned around and removed that professor without asking for an explanation or without having that situation explained to everyone in the class. And so it's it's things like like that where there is a clear explanation for what was being done and why it was being done and a very rational um, uh, explanation for you know he wasn't even intending to say what the students thought he was saying um, that it's going to make people fearful right I mean faculty and administrators they need to realize that they're going to make students afraid 
by not taking reasonable means to understand the all of the circumstances in a particular situation. So it'll be important for, for students to let faculty administrators know that they don't feel like their voices are being heard. And they, they need to be able to pitch it in such a way that they want both sides, right? It's important for both sides to get their ideas out there. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me and, and telling us so much about this topic. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, please take the time to share it with your friends and family. Leave us a comment or rating on your podcast listening app and send in your thoughts and comments to editor at heritage.org. It really helps us get the word out and build our audience. You can find Jonathan's article in the show notes for this episode. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you soon. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Descher, with editing by John Pop.